So take your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. Uh, we spent last week bringing some definition to the false teachers. Not everybody we disagree with about theological matters falls within the realm of a false teacher. So I think it's instructive for us. We may not like some things. We may disagree with a lot of things that some people believe, but I don't think they necessarily fall within a false teacher. What Peter describes, uses that moniker, a false teacher, is that they denied the second coming of Christ. They denied the coming judgment of God. They elevated their personal experience over the revelation of God. And they denied the authority of God in moral matters. And they were practicing and advocating for sexual immorality. And in our section today, we see how uh, Peter is wanting to encourage the church. We'll get more into that next week. But he's wanting to show them uh, this idea of God is actually a God who will judge sin. Now, I was actually thinking about this earlier, that, uh, you know, this notion about God judging is so difficult for, for many people, even Christians, uh, they struggle with this idea. And you read some of the passages in the Old Testament, it's like, man, God sure seems severe in how he's handling some of these things. And, uh, it, you know, it doesn't always sit well with us because, you know, we've been raised in this culture and, you know, we... We have this vision or this idea of who we think God is, and it doesn't always match with what we read in the Scripture. And so, um, you know, there, there are some messages that aren't here for, you know, some practical ways in which we can, you know, pray or do whatever. This is a message that really is about us adjusting our perspective of who God is. And we need this adjustment many times within our lives because we, we drink in the culture and we drink in, frankly, a lot of bad teaching even from churches. And, and so, you know, this is our standard right here. And this is what we want to take our perspective of God from, but it's easy to just kind of get off track. And so, just like your car needs aligned, every once in a while, our perspective needs aligned so that we're cutting it straight. And that's what we hope to do today with Second Peter chapter 2. So let's all stand as we look at this passage together. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We'll get through about half of this today, and we'll deal with the rest next week. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Mark Meinel wrote this. He said, The notorious 19th century showman Phineas T. Barnum built his reputation and even a political career on circuses, freak shows, and scams. Less known today are his religious views. The fact that he grew up in Connecticut during the Second Great Awakening, that extraordinary period of national religious revival, meant he would never forget his childhood tears of impending wrath evoked by itinerant preachers. He claimed this turned him off to Christianity for life. And he dedicated considerable efforts, such as publishing a newspaper, The Herald of Freedom, against the so-called Blue Laws, legislation that mandated religious practice on a wider population. So it is no surprise that he loved to tell the story of a grocer who was a deacon at his local church. One morning before breakfast, he called down to his clerk, John, have you watered the rum? Yes, sir. And sanded the sugar? Yes, sir. And dusted the pepper? Yes, sir. And chicoried the coffee? Yes, sir. Then come up to prayers. Chicory, by the way, is a, is a plant that can be used in the place of, of coffee. The point is, is that the, the grocer was no less a trickster than Barnum. But he had the nerve to conceal his deceitful business practices behind the respectability of religion. So what does hypocrisy tell us? Well, really, hypocrisy just tells us who humans are. But it doesn't really tell us anything about God, right? It doesn't inform us about the nature of God. And while unfortunate that purveyors of Christianity often get it wrong, we have a way to learn of the nature of God in the revelation of Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. Many folks would like to fashion a God of marshmallows and rainbows, but his actual character does not change by our misconceptions. Really, when you think about it, people don't mind the judgment of God, especially when it comes to him applying it to somebody that we think needs it, somebody who hurt us. Then I don't mind the judgment of God. Or if it helps in a cause or agenda that we have, then we don't mind the judgment of God. As long as it doesn't make moi feel uncomfortable, right? As long as it fits my perspective and it doesn't apply to us. Peter doesn't seem <laughs> to be bogged down by those concerns. He is cutting it straight, clearly, plainly. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Peter is referring to a group of angels who had relations with women on the earth. And we read of this story in Genesis 6. It directly precedes the flood account. And we see also in Peter's account where he gets into Noah after this. It says in Genesis, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of man saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of man came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Perhaps not a weirder passage. Strange passage in the Bible. Angels were referred to as the sons of God to designate their origin. They were created spirit beings, but somehow were able and permitted to take on human form, such as the three visitors in Genesis 18 with Abraham. Now, there is a lot of speculation regarding the activity of the Nephilim roaming the earth as giants. But such speculation, sorry to disappoint you today, is beyond the scope of this passage. And whatever the answers may be, we have to stay on the main point. Because the main point is still made with this passage, regardless of what you think the Nephilim were doing and what exactly they were. And here's the main point. If angels, glorious beings, powerful beings, are not exempt from God's judgment, how much more will humans face God when they are rebellious? And Peter's example stood in stark contrast to the claims of the arrogant false teachers who were claiming, eh, not going to be any judgment of God. Everybody's cool. Peter's saying sin is to violate a divine law. And these angels are going to have to face the divine lawgiver. And our passage says they were cast into hell in chains of gloomy darkness, quite descriptive. Now the term that's used for hell here is Tartarus. The translation may not be completely accurate in hell, but because it kind of throws people off thinking that this is a permanent final judgment. But Peter's point is that Tartarus is temporary. 
held until the final judgment arrives. Now, obviously, not all angels or demons are currently held captive. I mean, we read numerous accounts of angels and demons and their activity after Genesis 6. And Peter is referring to those who committed the sins referred to in Genesis 6 as being in this gloomy darkness. Tartarus is a term that was common to the Greeks and is similar to the Hebrew term Sheol or the New Testament usage of Hades. These terms often referred to a grave or in other contexts like we have today, a designation of a temporary stay until final judgment. In the case of the angels in Genesis 6, this is a place described as gloomy darkness. Now, the book of Enoch, which is a non-canonical book, you won't find this in our Bible, but one important for Jewish history, mentions deep valleys in which the fallen angels are kept. And that was kind of a, a Jewish understanding. The idea is that the angels, some of these angels in, in Genesis 6, are restrained in some way because of their sin. And so God has them in kind of this limited sphere of operation to await a final judgment. And they are kept in Tartarus until judgment. But the final judgment is sure for these angels. We should take note that because judgment is delayed for a future time, does not mean it is uncertain, right? In God's economy, punishment does not necessarily follow rebellion immediately. Peter would go on to say in chapter 3 this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there might be a period of time until final judgment arrives. But don't think it's not going to happen. Verse 5, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the entire world, except for Noah and his family, were taken from the earth in a worldwide flood. Now, why did this happen? Further in Genesis 6, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, 
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now many have cast doubts upon the truthfulness of Noah building an ark to save his family from a worldwide flood. Well, I want to ease your concerns today by telling you I have seen the ark. It is in Kentucky. (laughs) But I was unaware by seeing the ark that there is a gift shop on every level of the ark. (laughs) Apparently, Noah and his family needed something to do or extra income off each other. I don't know, it's a little weird. Though I visited a replica, it's still quite a sight. It's worth seeing at least once. Now, many archaeologists and geologists uh, can be found on both sides of this issue. Some saying it didn't happen, some saying it did. But there's very interesting evidence, including the tracking phenomenon, where tracks are found on one layer of sediment and bones on another indicating that there was some event that carried animals away. There is a large grouping of fossils found together, like millions, indicating a cataclysmic event. Or consider the sudden appearance of marine life in mountainous regions, giving evidence of a flood. Perhaps the best proof is testimony from the person who is identified as truth, personified as truth, Jesus Christ, who referred to the flood in Noah, giving credence to the event. Both angels and men fell under judgment in Noah's time. In the event of the flood of the whole earth, hence at the universality of God's judgment. But how were the people of Noah's day responding to Noah's warnings? Now, we often hear about the people during his day mocking Noah. In fact, we don't read that. Here's a description that Jesus gave. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were preoccupied with their own lives. They were preoccupied with pleasure. It's not that they mocked the judgment of God. They didn't think about it at all. The people ignored Noah's words like the false teachers ignored God's warnings in the first century. Noah was considered a herald of righteousness, meaning he warned the people of pending judgment. His wife, His three sons 
and their wives constituted the seven others on the ark, and they benefited from Noah's faithfulness. Noah is a reminder to us of the need for faithfulness in spite of overwhelming obstacles. Hebrews tells us, centuries later, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. One of the greatest challenges for us is to wait on God, continue in faith, not seeing immediately our reward. Peter makes a shift in emphasizing the escape of Noah and his family. Peter says God preserved Noah. The Greek word means to guard or watch over. During the time, the earth was filled with violence and corruption. But God didn't forget Noah and his family. And this would certainly be a relevant message to Peter's audience, who were living in fear of the false teachers. Now, yes, they're an irritation, they're a challenge. But I wonder, too, if it's not like many of us, who we just get tired of all that's going on in the world. We get tired and worn out by all the things that seem to come against just what is true, what is real, the Word of God. And so many people just don't want to fight anymore. And I don't mean in fighting other people, but just fight for our faith, to stand strong. We're going to delve more into this aspect of God's provision for us next week. Verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Well, let's read about this in Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. We read this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him. And entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men in the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And I think you know what that means. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters 
who have not known any man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Apparently Lot is not our model for parenting. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now he will, we will deal worse with you than with him. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew back to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot to the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I take it back that the previous passage was weird and the weirdest. This one maybe tops it. I mean, it's, if you weren't reading it, it's like, it's unbelievable. The angels warn Lot to get out. And then we read this, verses 23 through 28. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Again, people question the reliability of this account of God judging with fire upon multiple cities, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but some of the surrounding cities. Josephus, the, the first century historian, said this, in fact, vestiges of the divine fire and faint traces of five cities are still visible. Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, made similar remarks. He said, even to this day, there are seen in Syria monuments of the unprecedented destruction that fell upon them in the ruins and ashes and sulfur and smoke and the dusky flame which still is sent up from the ground as a fire smoldering beneath. Dr. Stephen Collins is an archaeologist and has written the book Discovering the City of Sodom. Dr. Collins' excavations of the city found evidence of high-temperature burning of the city. Diamond-like carbon, melted construction material, melted pottery, melted mud bricks, high-pressure shocked quartz, high-temperature melted minerals, melted nuggets of iridium, and many other metals in melt glass were found. All these show evidence of reaching temperatures greater than 1,300 Celsius with brief exposure to temperatures as high as 2,500 Celsius, the melting point of iridium. There are no signs of a meteor crater on this whole plain, the Jordan plain. 
leaving the biblical account as believable testimony. Now, there has been much discussion around what the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. The truth is it wasn't just one thing, but the evil was multifaceted, and, and we find Old Testament and New Testament writers telling us about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Concerning the sin of Israel and Jerusalem, Ezekiel draws a comparison, and he says this, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all their ways. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And then in the New Testament, we read in Jude, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so the sin was one both of pride, not expressing kindness to strangers, and sexual immorality has displayed in this unrelenting homosexuality. Actress Jessica Alba grew up in a conservative Christian youth group, and she would end up rejecting all of this at age 17. She was turned off by the boundaries and labels set by fellow churchgoers. That year, she attended an acting workshop in Vermont and fell crazy in love with a cross-dressing ballet dancer who had a baby and was bisexual. Of course, who hasn't fallen in with somebody like that right? and loved them? She said, there's just no way that he's going to hell. I feel like at the end of the day, God is love and everyone is human. Now, just set the offense aside. It's not about the sin. My point in bringing this up is that Alba expresses what I'd say most in our culture feel and think, that God does not and will not judge sin. I mean, how can any sin deserve this severe treatment that we read about? God is just. How can he punish like this? I read one answer from a pastor who outlined the stages of judgment in the following scenario. He said, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? The student is given a detention. Suppose during the detention, this boy punches the teacher. What happens? The student gets suspended from school. 
Suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman on the nose. What happens? He will find himself in jail. Suppose some years later, the very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. As the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to attack the President. What happens? Well, he's certainly to face prison, but he could also be shot dead by the Secret Service. In every case, the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom the sin is committed. It may not surprise us then that God judges the unrepentant, false teaching, and immorality expressed in 2 Peter. The fact is, do we really want to worship a God who does not judge, who accepts everything? At some point, all of us realize that we want a God who judges. Whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's people who are awful racists, whether it's, you know, Charles Manson, name the sin or sinner, and we would want God to judge. So it's really not a matter of if he judges, it's how far will he take it? Well, that's not for us to say, that's for us to understand as God has revealed himself. And that's what needs adjustment for many of us. I want to worship God as he is, not a projection based upon a cultural ideology. And we're all influenced by it, right? Not a one of us has not been influenced by it. But just like we need to have an adjustment in our car every once in a while to steer straight, we need an adjustment in our perspective of who God is. And this is where we get that from. This is where we get our alignment. How will that help you tomorrow? How will that help you today? Well, I hope that it'll help us in how we approach life. The seriousness that we get up in the morning and we realize God is present. It's not a foreboding fear that freezes me, but it's a fear of God that gives me security. That gives me direction. That I know he has my back. And I live within this idea of this moral order that he's given me. And I live with the idea that my life is to do the job that he's given me. And I know that I'll answer for that. And I know that he'll reward for that. How can we not take that seriously? I'm glad that we worship a God who judges. He is perfect in his assessment, right? So I can rejoice in that. Let's pray.